from Bayside Church International, Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's near the end of the book. Maybe about five or six books in from the back. Should be able to find that easy. But before we do that, I want to share a couple of Bayside basics. Good for those of you who are new. Some basic Bayside basics. This is what we have on our website under the Who We Are section talking about our ethos as a church. There it is. It says this, Bayside Basics uh, ethos on our website. It says this, The distinct DNA and values of our church stem largely from embracing what the scriptures teach regarding identity. After all, it is on the rock-solid revelation of identity, both his and ours, that Jesus said, I will build my church. Sixteen years ago, my first ever sermon, Glennis, you were there, apparently, according to last week's video, I stood up in front of a small group of people and I said five words, I will build my church. These are words spoken by Jesus. They are recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is with his friends and he says, what do people say about me? They gave a whole bunch of different opinions that were going around Twitter and Facebook at the time. And then Jesus said, no matter what other people say, this is what's most important. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who was always the first to speak up in that group of friends, because we've all got one friend like that, has to be the first, said, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. A big thing for a Jewish boy to say. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. And then he said this, Peter, no, he didn't. He said, Simon, from today, you are going to be known as Peter, which means a little stone. I'm changing your identity. And he said, and on this rock... I will build my church. On what rock? On the heavenly revelation of who Jesus is. <gasps> I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Yes. And now that you know who I am, I want you to know who you are. You are no longer Simon. You are a little rock. And on this rock, solid foundation, identity, who I am and who you are, I will build my church. And that church that I build, the gates of Hades, which is another way of saying death in Greek, the gates of death will not overcome that church that is built on the rock-solid identity, on the rock-solid revelation of his identity and subsequent to that, our identity because of him. So identity, for that reason and many others, is really important. That's why we say around here, well, it's actually, it's in the next paragraph. It says this, in this way, Dedication to our values is not an externally imposed commitment. Uh, if you're part of Bayside, you have to commit to this. No, no, no. Dedication to our values is a natural response from an internal conviction concerning who we are and whose we are. Who we are and whose we are. Because I know who he is and subsequently I know who I am on that revelation 
I'm going to participate with him to help build the church that he's committed to building. And it's that kind of ethos, the fundamental understanding of identity, of who Jesus has revealed himself to be, on whom Jesus has revealed us to be, that our values and our ethos and our modus operandi and all those things stem from that. We do what we do because of Jesus. We do things how we do them because of Jesus. We do things and we believe things and we prioritise things because of who he is and because of who he says we are. And so we act out of a knowledge of who we are. That kind of makes sense? So identity is really key for us. Now, why do I say that today? I, feel, I forgot. That's a genuine question. No, no, no. <laughs> because Poeta, who Jesus spoke to in that story, uh, had a bit of a shaky relationship with Jesus when it came to his identity. It's in this very chapter that Jesus calls him Peter and then a few chapters later calls him Satan. Okay, it's, it's, in this, it's a few chapters later where he's sitting at the table eating with Jesus and then he's denying him and self-hating himself because of that. Peter kind of had an up and down, I think his temperament was wired for that a little bit, always the first to speak, you know, maybe should toned down a little bit, but he had this up and down insecurity that manifested itself quite a lot. But it was Peter who, after seeing Jesus raised from the dead and had Holy Spirit come upon him, stood up in front of thousands of people at the peak of their religious festival and said to them, you guys crucified Jesus. And with that great courage and that great boldness, Peter, after a while, became secure in who he was. And about 30 years after this encounter with Jesus, where Jesus changed his name, we see that that same desire, that he knew who he was, Peter wanted to communicate that to others. He wanted other people also to be secure in their identity. And so it's about, in 30 years later, he wrote the letter of First Peter, and he says this to his Christian and mostly Jewish audience in First Peter chapter 2. I think that's why I came to say that. Are you there, First Peter 2? If you have a Bible, if you don't, it's on the screen. So, you know, I'm not making everything up here. Okay, verse 4. As you come to him who is the living stone. You see that theme continue. Now, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. Here he is 30 years later calling Jesus the living stone. The one who is rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also are like living stones. And you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Of all the identities that we hold as a believing community, one of them is that we are a house where worship takes place. We are a house of worship. You two, like living stones, are being built together in a spiritual house. You are like royal priests. Where'd my verse go? You're like royal priests who offer acceptable sacrifices to God in worship. We, among many other identities, are a house of worship. Worship. The next verse, uh, down to verse 9, he reiterates the point and says, But you are a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. One of the things you know that I've been endeavouring to do more and more in the last year or so, and particularly doing our Bible reading plan on YouTube this year, is to help us to see the language of the Scripture from beginning to end. The New Testament does not exist on its own. Okay, Almost every identity picture and many of the themes that we see in the New Testament are all borrowed from the old, Okay, revisited as it were, reimagined in the new context of what Jesus has done. And so this verse here where he calls the church a people chosen, royal, priesthood, a holy nation that have come out of darkness and into light. That is straight out of Exodus 19 where Moses is at Mount Sinai and he speaks to Israel after they've come out of the darkness of Egypt into the light of the glory of God and he calls them a holy nation that God wanted to make a royal priesthood. Peter is using that language from thousands of years earlier and saying this now, my friends, applies to you as a new covenant community believing in Jesus. He's borrowing the language of Moses. Those Christians in that first century period, and you could say the same would be true for us today, were experiencing an exodus. So it's this re- it was like a second exodus. There's this motif of the, in the New Testament called the second exodus. And what had happened under Pharaoh, and God people came through the Red Sea, the apostles revisited that metaphor, re- revisited that story, that historical story, and applied it to the Christians of their day. Okay, so that's the language he's using here. But the point is this, in both of these passages, he talks about the Christian community being a worshipping community, a, a community of priests. And in that first verse, he says, you are being built into a spiritual house. We are a house of worship. And this spring, for the next few weeks, this is going to be the subject of our next preaching series. I get to launch it today. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at the fact that the church is a house of worship. Amen. Now, when is the first time the concept of God's people being a house of stones built together? Peter did not come up with that idea on his own in AD 60. That again was a picture borrowed from the Old Testament. When is the first time we see that picture demonstrated in the Scripture? In which book did that picture have its origins? Origins. Genesis. When did that picture have its genesis? In the book of? Genesis, okay. Genesis 28, I'm going to read the story here of Genesis 28. This is the first mention, the very first mention of the word house in the Bible. Okay, that's what the book of Genesis is, all right? That's what we're all joking about. Genesis means origins. It's the book where most of the motifs of the scripture have their origin, okay? In the book of Genesis. And the idea of God having a house and it being a house of worship begins right back here in, uh, clearly anyway, in Genesis 28. We're reading the story of Jacob. Uh, most of you who know the Bible a little bit would understand that when God called a group of a family of people, he started with Abraham, who passed his legacy on to his son Isaac, 
and Jacob was the grandson, okay? So we're reading about Jacob. He's on his way, running away from his brother, off to find a wife. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, name of the pub he was staying in overnight, and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he laid down to sleep. Sounds comfortable? He had a dream. He actually slept. <laughs> he actually did get to sleep. That's amazing. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a staircase resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, the east, the north and the south. In fact, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this place. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, my neck's a bit sore. <laughs> and then he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And yet I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, wow, how awesome is this place. For this is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway of heaven. First mention of the phrase house of God in the scripture. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone it placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel. Though the city used to be called Lars Bethel, Bethel, whatever, um, basically means house of God. Okay, Beth, house. Good on you, Beth. L is El Shaddai. It's like an abbreviation for God, so it's house of God. All right? You get Bethlehem. It's not Bethlehem. That's a different place. But Bethlehem in the New Testament uh, where Jesus was born means bread. So Bethlehem is known as house of God's bread. Okay? So it's the whole thing there. So Bethlehem means house of God. Yeah, if you, don't, if you want to pronounce something from the Scriptures, just put a ch in it and people think you know what you're talking about. I've got no idea if that's wrong. <laughs> it just sounds Hebrew. Uh, anyway, he called the place Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow, sorry, Jacob made a vow, <laughs> saying, since if God will be with me and will watch over me, and the word if, it's really since God will be with me. God's just promised, I will be with you. All right, so it's not like he's really doing a deal. It's not if as in a deal, it's like, well, since God will be with me, it's kind of that vibe, since God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, this Lord will be my God and this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Next verse, then Jacob continued on his journey and came 
to the land of the Eastern peoples. I just want to make four brief observations in this origin story of the house of God being a house of worship, a place called Bethel. Four observations in this origin story of a house of worship. The house of worship is an awesome place. And it is an awesome place because, number one, it is a house of glory. What made Bethel awesome, wow, how awesome is this place, was not the view, was not the company, it wasn't the fragrance that Jacob woke up to in the morning, it certainly wasn't the pillows that were for sale at the local stores. What made Bethel awesome was the fact that God was there. It's the house of glory. It's the house of God's very presence. How awesome is this place? God was here and I didn't know it until I had a dream. I don't know if we read too much into this, but the fact that when his vision, he saw the angels, it says ascending and descending. Ascending first. It doesn't say he saw the angels descending and then going up. He saw the angels going up and then coming down. Which means they started on the earth. How awesome was this place? I rocked up to a place where there was angelic activity all around me and I didn't know it till I fell asleep and I saw a staircase come down and those angels that were all around me started going up and then coming back down. How awesome is this place? God is here. And it's incredible as we think about what it is to be a house of worship. Number one, it is about being a place where we acknowledge that God is here. There are many things that I would love Bayside to be known for. Primarily, even though people have different views and opinions and may say different things at different times, I say this often, but I am responsible for my reputation ultimately. Over the years... I'm responsible for my reputation by and large. And that means sometimes people will have a, give a bad rating. They will misunderstand. They might miscommunicate. But over years, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my reputation. And I think the same is true with the church community. We are, at the end of the day, responsible for our reputation long term. And we should have an idea of what we want our reputation to be like. And I could probably stand before you today and list a hundred things without thinking too hard of what I'd love us as a church to be known for. But number one would have to be this. I want us to be known as a place where God is there. God is there. Great kids ministry, decent coffee, friendly people at the door, funny looking carpet, doesn't quite reach the walls. We can be known for a lot of things. But ultimately to be a community where people say, you know what, God is there. That would be the most special and precious thing to me. How awesome is this place? Why? Because it's a house of glory. And sometimes we're not aware of it. And maybe today, and maybe as we evermore become the house of worship that we already are, it's us saying, Lord, help me be more aware of your presence that is already here. Because we're not in a covenant relationship, we're not in a deal with God where we have to scream and cry 
for him and cut ourselves so that he will come and be with us. We're in a relationship with God where heaven opened at the baptism of Jesus and there's no verse ever that said it closed again. Heaven opened. Holy Spirit came down. A voice was heard and heaven has never been closed. The ministry of Jesus has rendered the heavens opened. And in fact, in John chapter 1, Jesus recalls this story that we just read and said, I am Jacob's ladder. He said, I am the one that the angels ascend and descend on. You know the reason that the church can be a house of God's presence and God's glory? It is because we have a, a Jesus who is the personification of grace. We have glory because there is grace. Because Jesus has opened heaven for us. And we can stand before God not only in the sweet by and by when we die, but we can stand before God today with full confidence and assurance because of what, who and what Jesus has done. If there's a password to get into heaven, it's one word and it's Jesus. Why do you deserve to be here? Jesus. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because our confidence is not in our performance. Our confidence is not in our pedigree. Our confidence is in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Again, identity. We know who he is. And that's where my confidence comes. We have a house of glory possible to access God's presence because he's not far away from any of us because Jesus has made his presence possible and has brought the kingdom of God within reach. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is within your reach. And so when we think of this staircase and this, this concept of a, a staircase that joins heaven and earth, don't think of a distant place, separated. Think of a house with upstairs and downstairs. That's the idea of a temple. It's heaven and earth meet. And upstairs and downstairs are together in this one place. That's why in the ancient Mesopotamia, in this, this era, whatever it is, um, 1800 BC or something like that, they built this thing called ziggurat. Did, that, did I say that right, John? Ziggurat or ziggurat. That's basically what the Tower of Babel was, a ziggurat. And they all have staircases, okay? K kind of pyramid-y, kind of, okay? And they have staircases because the whole idea is this is the place where our God meets the earth, this concept of a staircase. So God is speaking here to Jacob in a language that he would understand. Okay, a staircase that joins heaven to earth. How awesome is this place? Why? Because it is a house of God's presence. Amen. And there's so much more I could say about that. Number two, what is, why is this place awesome, a house of worship? It is not only a house of glory, it is also a house of gathering. To have church, it's a simple equation. God plus people equals church. You don't want a Christless churchianity and in a similar way, a churchless Christianity, both of those things are really weird. And we see Bethel as a place of gathering you know, I think, well, Chad, where do you get that? Jacob's here on his own. Well, yeah, except that God promises him that his generations will come back to this place and worship. And secondly, we see the picture that Peter picks up on 
in his letter, because you know I had to bring it back to Peter, where this house of worship is a house where living stones are built together. Living. So what does Peter do? He takes the stone from under his head. What's his name? Yachob. And it's Yachob and Poira. And um, he takes a stone and it says he built a pillar of stones. He puts his pillow on top and then what does he do? He pours oil on it. The place of Bethel is not only the place of a portal where heaven meets earth, it's also the place of the anointed stones. And so we see the first mention of God's house where Peter builds something. Jacob builds something. Jacob builds something. What does he build? He builds a pillar of stones and he anoints it from the top down. Jesus, the high priest of the living stones, anointed. This is a picture of Aaron's beard, okay, the whole Old Testament thing, pour the oil on, running down. It's pointed on Jesus, the high priest, and that oil runs down and covers everyone else, the very one that gave Jacob a place of rest, placed on top. The, the, the place of Bethel is amazing. It's an awesome place, not only because God's there, but it's a place where people gather. Anointed stones are being built together. And so Peter, in the first century, says, as you come to him, the living stone, you are being built together as living, precious stones, straight out of Isaiah, rubies, turquoise, all different types of stones being built together, and we are anointed together as an anointed community. One of the reasons that the house of worship is an awesome place is because you are here. Because God is here, and because y'all are here, because you are awesome. If you get a bit nervous about being called awesome, just remember that you are God's masterpiece. And every artist knows when you praise the art work, you're actually praising the artist. So for me to say you are awesome is just another way of saying good job, God. Good job, God. But this is an awesome place. The house of worship is an awesome place because it's a place of glory and it's a house also of gathering and people being built together as living stones. It's an old picture, but it still works. We are not a house made of bricks. I went to, um, last week, friends of ours started a church in, planted a church in Mount, um, no, what's it called? McLaren Vale. They have their sort of first Sunday this afternoon and they're in, in an old Uniting Church building and it's the first time in a while, you know, you walk through old building, the bathroom block or whatever and it's all Besser block on the inside. You know, that old, that old chestnut, that old look, you know. Like, oh, I haven't seen this for a while. Walking through Besser block. You are not a Besser block building <laughs> because bricks are all identical. Same colour, same texture, same size, same shape, and they never touch one another because we've got a safe buffer zone of mortar in between. So you never actually have to touch another Christian, God forbid. <laughs> okay, the church is not a cookie-cut collection of bricks. We are living stones. When you build a stone wall, you are putting pieces in and they actually rub up against one another.
Yeah. They rub up against one another. And we are living stones, which also means we are changing and growing. And that's why you need the oil. Not mortar. That means we never touch one another and you keep a safe distance. No, we need oil to ease the friction that can come when living stones are being built up against and in one another. So, Lord, we thank you for your anointing oil that saturates us because you are building something beautiful. And part of that beauty is the fact that you are building people close. And it doesn't mean that you are as close to every stone equally. You can be in a church of... Sorry, you can be in a pillar of stones that's got a thousand stones in it, but in reality you're only touching four or five at once. But you're still part of something big. There's always room in a big church for small relation, for close relationships. Yeah? Anyway, we are living stones. We are a house of glory. We are a house of gathering. And gathering together is a very important thing. Number three, we're a house of giving. A house of giving. And the end of this story, Jacob wakes up, he's got a sore neck, surely God's in this place, does the anointed stones thing. And then he makes a pledge to God and he says, God, everything you give me, I'm going to honour you by giving back a tenth of what you give me. And this is the first mention of the word tenth in the Hebrew, it's the word tithe, it's just the same word. And there's no coincidence that the first time the house of God's mentioned, living anointed stones, worship in that house, involves tenthing in that house. It's, it's this, this thing of saying, this house that I'm building, I'm going to keep building it. And he does this in chapter 35. He comes back to this place because he does a bit of a circuit, gets married, has kids, does the whole father-in-law thing. It's a whole days of our lives drama there. And then he ends up coming back here and he brings God an offering as he builds an altar at this place. So he fulfills his pledge. But it's a place or a house known as giving. And that's what worship is. When we worship, we're giving of our words. We're offering our bodies as living sacrifices. We're giving our energy. We're giving our concentration. Let me do all the A's. We're giving him our attention. We're giving him our affection. We're giving him our adoration. We're giving him our applause. We're giving him our admiration. We're giving him our assets. Okay? We're giving him our acknowledgement. That'll do. <laughs> this is what worship is. Worship is giving. And whether that's putting our hands up in the air or putting our hands down in our pockets... We are saying in a house of worship, it's about us giving to him what is honourable for him. The whole tenth thing was a bit of a, uh, again, a, a picture of a king. What, uh, it, it became like the tax for the king, the way to honour the king in living in his country was by giving a tenth. That, that was sort of the Mesopotamian, again, culture of that time. So it was this whole thing of, I'm going to honour the king for the privilege of living in his country and his protection and his pathways of provision for me by tenthing to him. And this is what we see Jacob doing, understanding that I've met God here, this God of grace that has already promised to bless me. 
when Jacob came to this place, there wasn't a bargaining table where he sat down at one end and he said, God, I like the idea that you can bless. Let me buy it off you. Not what he did. God came to him without him even asking and said, Jacob, I decided to bless you. Like I did with your dad, like I did with your grandpa, I've decided to bless you. Jacob's like, what have I done for you? Nothing. That's what grace is. I've decided to bless you. I've decided to protect you. I've decided to give pathways for you. I've decided to bless you and your descendants after you. And the most natural and normal thing for Jacob to do when he woke up was to say, God, I'm going to give back to you. To buy the promise? No, no, no. As a sign, as like Malcolm was saying before, the sign of respect and awe for a God that has already promised to bless me, I, I give back to you. And sometimes it seems like our contribution, when you really have a big picture view of God, it's like, God, you know, what am I, what can I possibly contribute to you? What can I possibly offer? What can I possibly give? And yet this is a God that, like a father with his kids, just loves it. When those kids are not forced to say thank you. They're not forced. You know, no matter how old your parents are, you know there's nothing like getting a phone call from your kid, no matter how old they are, where they live, just saying, Mum and Dad, just calling to say, I love you and I want to thank you. Nothing touches your heart more than that. Nothing touches your heart more than putting a two-year-old to bed at night and as you close the door, she says, I love you, Daddy. That's sort of my age. That's where I'm at. Nothing touches your heart more than the unsolicited, genuine response of a heart of appreciation from a child to the parent and this is what we see Jacob doing thanks you're awesome I'll give back to you this is worship worship is a response to God's already promised blessing and presence and grace for us it is not begging him to do something it's Rob's favorite story Elijah on Mount Carmel yeah You've got the, the, the prophets of Baal trying to get their God's attention. If I cut myself enough, if I scream enough, if I shout and holler enough, maybe our gods will hear. Christian worship is a response. It is Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything he's done for you, Romans 1 to 11, therefore, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Worship is a response. And that's why it is so easy to be a house of giving when we understand that he has given it all for us. And even when David took, received an offering, or Solomon for the temple, it might have been Solomon that said this, I think it was, he saw the offering come up, come in for the temple, and he said, who are we that we can give back to you? Everything's yours anyway. Everything's yours anyway. But he delights in our offering. And this is why Peter can say in that opening verse, we offer spiritual sacrifices him, to him that are acceptable to God in Christ. When is my worship acceptable? When it's done in Christ. It's done in light of who Jesus is and what he's already done. We're a house of giving. Is that okay? I'm not, not moving fast enough.
This is an awesome place. It's a house of glory because it's a house of grace. I could have done seven Gs. I could have matched the wall, but I decided not to. I'm just going to stick with four, okay? House of glory is a house of gathering, a place where God and man meet, is a house of giving. And lastly, and this is why I read the final verse in that story, which actually goes into the next chapter, but it's also a house of going. Because after this story, as powerful as this place was, as awesome as that encounter was, as wonderful as that anointed stone pillar was, Jacob doesn't stay there. He moves on. He continues the journey and he continues to be a blessing to people beyond his borders. Christianity is not a Sunday sport. What we do here on a Sunday is a bit like the half-time scrub. We pat one another on the back in the change rooms. On the back. You all smell a bit like wet grass and deep heat. Because the real game is Monday to Saturday Christianity. It's gathering so that we can grow and then growing that we may go and be more effective in our week and in our world so that as you go, make disciples of all nations. Take the encounter that you had at Bethel. Take the visions. Take the God moments and take it with you as you travel onto your next place. House of worship is a house of going. And we come to meet with him. We come to meet with one another. We come to give the best that we can to build a beautiful house of anointed stones. But we also gather that we can go. Because we're not just a house. We are a house not of settling. The church isn't a place of settling. The, the church is a place of sending. And later, of course, Jacob returns here. God said he would. He comes back and then he goes again. And he meets with God and he worships God at this place. Sundays are our chance where we are the church. We are assembling together. But we are little Christs, Christians, in our Monday to Saturday as we leave. And as we take that anointed stone experience and take that presence with us as we go. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.